Turn in your Bibles to Daniel uh, chapter 11. We'll begin in verse 2. If you don't have a copy of the scriptures, the text is in the back of your order of worship. Uh, Sarah had to work really hard this week to make that fit, so it's not your imagination if it feels like the text in the order of worship is a little smaller this evening, Uh, but she made it work, and we're thankful for that. Uh, So last week's text wrapped up actually in verse 1 of chapter 11. Uh, That's probably a better way to divide the text. And so we're going to pick up in verse 2. We're really mid-vision here. Remember Daniel last week for three weeks was in prayer before the angel showed up. He had the vision of the man in linen, the terrifying vision of the man, um, probably a vision of Christ. Uh, That vision transitions into an explanation on the part of the angel, and that explanation continues in this evening's reading. We're going to read Daniel 11 from 2 through chapter 12, verse 3. It will continue into the, uh, the last verses of the book as well. All of this, 10 through 12, being one vision that Daniel has, one encounter with Christ. Uh, before I read this evening, there is... Uh, this can seem like a really puzzling chapter. Uh, it's not puzzling if you know the history between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New. Uh, what we're actually getting in much of this chapter this evening is a survey of the history of the Macedonian empires. Uh, you'll remember Alexander the Great defeated the Persians, but almost immediately, just 10 years after the campaign began, And immediately upon finishing, uh, Alexander dies. The kingdom, over the next couple of years, there's some tussling, and it finally settles out into four separate kingdoms. Two of those kingdoms, in particular, are constantly at war with one another. And from the perspective of uh, this, this time in history, they would have been the northern and southern kingdoms. Not what we ordinarily mean in the Old Testament by northern and southern kingdoms of Israel and Judah, but the northern kingdom uh, of the Greeks and the southern kingdom of the Greeks. That southern kingdom included Egypt. The northern kingdom included the land of Israel, the the land of Palestine. And so uh, Daniel's not only getting in the vision a prophecy of the wars that are going to unfold over the centuries to come, but it's also a prophecy of these wars as they unfold, particularly with respect to God's people who are caught up in the midst of it. And that's germane because this is what Daniel's upset about. Daniel is upset about the plight of his people. He's upset that Cyrus has issued the decree to go home, but the building's not gone well. And three weeks of mourning and prayer, Daniel has, has sought after God. And all of this is in answer to that prayer of Daniel. So I'm going to read, uh, and I'm going to read a little faster than I normally do probably, so that there will be time to, uh, to exposit the word this evening. Uh, but all of the back and forth, it has purpose for us, despite the fact that we do not live under the threat of the Macedonian empires. So here the reading of God's word, Daniel 11, beginning in verse 2. The angel says, And now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. When he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up against all, uh, stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king shall arise, who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he is risen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven." 
but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. Then the king of the south shall be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger than he, and shall rule, and his authority shall be a greater authority. And after some years they shall make an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure, but she shall be given up in her attendance, he who fathered her, and he who supported her in those times. And from a branch, from her roots, one shall arise in his place. He shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he shall deal with them and shall prevail. He shall also carry off to Egypt their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold. And for some years he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. Then the latter shall come into the realm of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. His son shall wage war and assemble a multitude of great forces, which shall keep coming and to overflow and pass through, and again shall carry the war as far as his fortress. Then the king of the south, moved with rage, shall come out and fight against the king of the north, and he shall raise a great multitude, but it shall be given into his hand. And when the multitude is taken away, his heart shall be exalted, and he shall cast down tens of thousands, but he shall not prevail." For the king of the north shall again raise a multitude greater than the first, and after some years he shall come on, come on with a great army and abundant supplies. In those times many shall rise against the king of the south, and the violent among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fail. Then the king of the north shall come and throw up siege works and take a well-fortified city, and the forces of the south shall not stand, or even his best troops, for there shall be no strength to stand. But he who comes against him shall do as he wills, and none shall stand before him. And he shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his hand. He shall set his face to come with the strength of his whole kingdom, and he shall bring terms of an agreement and perform them. He shall give him the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom, but it shall not stand or be to his advantage. Afterward, he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall capture many of them, but a commander shall put an end to his insolence. Indeed, he shall turn his insolence back upon him. Then he shall turn his face back toward the fortresses of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and shall not be found. Then shall arise in his place one who shall send an exactor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom, but within a few days he shall be broken, neither in anger nor in battle, in his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, even the prince of the covenant. And from the time that an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully, and he shall become strong with a small people. Without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the province, and he shall do whatever, do what neither his fathers nor his father's fathers have done, scattering among them plunder, spoil, and goods. He shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. And he shall stir up his power and his heart against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall wage war with an exceedingly great and mighty army, but he shall not stand, for plots shall be devised against him. Even those who eat his food shall break him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. And as for the two kings, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. They shall speak lies at the same table, but to no avail, for the end is yet to be at the appointed time. And he shall return to his land with great wealth, but his heart shall be set against the holy covenant. And he shall work his will and return to his own land. At the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south. 
But it shall not be this time as it was before, for ships of Katim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw, and shall turn back and be enraged, and take action against the holy covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the holy covenant. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress, and he shall take away the regular burnt offering, and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help, and many shall join themselves to them with flattery. And some of the wise shall stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished. For what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other god for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the God of fortresses instead of these, a God whom his fathers did not know. He shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign God. Those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, but the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and with many ships. And he shall come into countries and shall overflow and pass through. He shall come into the glorious land, and tens of thousands shall fall. But these shall be delivered out of his hand, Edom and Moab and the main part of the Ammonites. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become ruler of the treasures of gold and of silver, and all the precious things of Egypt and the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. But news from the east and the north shall alarm him. And he shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. And he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like stars forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. One of my favorite commentators says in his chapter, uh, the chapter of his commentary on Daniel 11, that our view of history is foundational to the way we live. If history is an assortment of random circumstances coming from nowhere and going nowhere, then faithful suffering has no possible meaning. It is a a wasted life that could have been better spent on pursuing pleasure instead. But if history is actually following God's predetermined course to a final end, then our actions are filled with meaning. One of the things that I hope overwhelmed you in the reading of the text this evening was just the meaninglessness of the back and the forth, the constant scheming and devising plots and plans. 
cheating and robbing and, uh, and double, uh, doubling back on promises. Uh, the, the world is being described here in, uh, in terms of the constant search for power, uh, a, a fight, a struggle that in the world never seems to end. It never seems to quite come to rest in any one particular person or nation. It's a specific period of time that's being described here, as I said earlier, that particularly focused on the Macedonian era uh, when the Greeks ruled the eastern Mediterranean. Uh, Historians can sit down with this chapter, and they can so clearly uh, map the details here onto the very details that we know from this time and place that many scholars refuse to believe that this was prophetic and insist that it must have been written after the fact. It's just too detailed. But even though we can see in the details, we can, we can map these details over history, that's only good up to a point in our text this evening. It would be easy to wonder what good it does us to read about a vision that Daniel had in the, the fifth century, going back and, and describing everything that happens between the Testaments. What does that have to do with us? But we really don't have to, uh, to, to struggle to make that connection because the, the text itself transitions beginning around verse 36, and suddenly historians have difficulty mapping perfectly these details on history. There's some things that match and some things that don't until finally we come to chapter 12, verse 1, and at that time shall arise Michael, and we get a description of this final trouble and then a resurrection from the dead and a salvation of all whose names are found written in the book and shining like stars forever. Somewhere between 36 and the beginning of chapter 12, the vision has morphed. Uh, and it's, it's not so much a matter of us needing to map these details onto current events. It's not, it's not important. We are not inclined. We are not encouraged to sit down with these details and try to figure out where that transition occurs in history and where we stand in that transition. But instead, it's, it's quite vague how that transition takes place until it comes to the obvious end of all of redemptive history. What is the point? The point is we stand in this period The Macedonians may be long gone, but the game has been played continually. As the Macedonians disappear from the field, it's the Romans. But the Romans can't hold on to power. Ultimately, they, through weakness, disintegrate. The Ottoman Empire taking over the east, the Vandals and Gauls coming in through the north, and Rome falls and is never again the power that it was. Kings and kingdoms rise and fall. And if we were to go back and carefully across all of these verses, pay attention to who's doing the action so often, we see the hand of God turning this and that. How many times did we read the refrain in the verses tonight, it was not yet the time appointed. Who is it that's appointing the times but God? So this evening, we could spend weeks in this text, to be honest with you. It's one of those that you start the week going, what in the world am I going to say about this? And by the end of the week, you're thinking, we should have, we should have taken three weeks on these verses. Uh, and instead, on a Sunday evening, we've got 12 minutes left. I want, to, I want to point to two things. First, the people's plot in vain. Why does Daniel need to be reminded of the truth of all of these things? 
because it's in the midst of this plotting, it's in the midst of the people plotting against Judah as they've gone home to rebuild the walls and the temple. There are Tobias and Sam Ballot rising up against the rebuilding, attempting to interfere, threatening even to attack and destroy. Everything has come to an end as Cyrus himself has even put a pause on the rebuilding. And Daniel is crying out to God, what is going on? When will you deliver your people? When will you restore Jerusalem? And God's answer to Daniel is, Daniel, Daniel, the nations will rage. The peoples will plot in vain. But I am God, and I am ordaining all things. I have ordained all things, and all things are unfolding according to my plan and purpose. And at the appointed time, this happens. And at the appointed time, that happens, and not before. The people's plot in vain in this world. Power struggles continue. And there is, as we all know, whether it's in business or politics, there is no ethic except me first, I win And in this world, apart from the the knowledge of God, in this world, it appears as though these are men and women of real power, that they have the power to affect our lives, that they have the power, if they want to attempt it, to keep us from worshiping. They have the power to shut down our churches. And in other countries, this, this has been happening and continues to happen. You know that I've traveled to Rwanda a few times, a country that I've, I've fallen in love with in the time that I've spent there. But their churches have been shut down in droves by a dictator who has simply determined that he will not share power or influence in his country. We live in a world where the nations rage. They rage against one another, and they rage against the people of God. We see it in the reading this evening. Uh, one of the historical figures that much of the text is about tonight is Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes is constantly at war with the kingdom to the south, uh, the Ptolemaic kingdom. He's constantly at war with this kingdom and constantly frustrated. And, and there's a point at which our text says the ships of Katim show up. That's the Romans. And there's this great story where Antiochus is marching to Egypt and the Romans show up and the Roman general walks and, and draws a circle in the sand around Antiochus Epiphanes. And he says, go on and be destroyed or go home and preserve your life and your army. And Antiochus says, let me think about it. He says, before you step out of the circle, I'm going to need an answer, right? Great moments in in history as we look back on them. He's so frustrated, and at multiple times in history, it's described in the text that we read this evening, we know it to have happened in frustration and in rage, Antiochus Epiphanes will go and take it out on the Jewish people. And as the Jewish people themselves attempt to rise up against Antiochus, he, he destroys, he frustrates them, ultimately even going into the temple in Jerusalem and sacrificing a pig on the altar in the temple and turning the temple into a temple to Zeus. Listen, the, the nations have been raging for thousands of years and God's church is still here. The gospel has not been destroyed or silenced or frustrated And in in a a 
manner that is confusing to the world and its powers. It seems the more that they try to place the church and the gospel under their boot, the more it seems to thrive. So that famously one of the church fathers, Tertullian, said the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The people's plot in vain. Listen, we should not fear the nations. They certainly can inflict pain. They certainly can come with destruction. But what they cannot do is destroy the people of God, destroy the church of God, destroy the kingdom of God. We should not fear the nations. Psalm 2 says that God laughs at them as they rise up and rage against Him and against His people, against His anointed. God laughs at the nations. We should not fear them. Their plans are not only powerless, but their steps are directed by God to His purposes. Understand this, brothers and sisters, and we're not always going to understand the details. We're not always going to understand what God's doing in those difficult, those hard providences in the world. But understand this, that even as the world, as the nations, as the powerful, raise their hand up to strike the people of God, they do nothing that is not in service to His plan and purpose. This is the world that we live in. It appears as though they have the power. It appears as though they can do whatever they want. But time and again in history, they fail. No matter how powerful anybody becomes, they die. They move on. We see multiple people here. It almost reads as if, those, as if there is one king of the north and one king of the south. But if you read it carefully, you'll see it's generations of kings in the north and the south. And we keep reading. There's several points in the text as we read where it says, and he died. This one disappeared. Nobody's even sure where he ended up dead. This one died. And it's not even worth telling you how he died. He's just not there anymore. He just came to an end with nobody to help him. But it's God who is doing all of these things. God who is at work. And this should provide us with some comfort in the midst of suffering. We should derive this comfort, not because we know we won't suffer. The people of God have suffered in the world, and they will suffer in the world. And if we are not suffering now, then now is the best time to come up with a sound theology of suffering in order to be prepared for the day that God has ordained suffering for the church in this country. We should be comforted that no matter what appears to be happening in the world, God has ordained all things, and He's done so for our good and for His glory, and His kingdom will prevail over all. Second this evening, God does not need our violence, but requires only that we stand firm. Look at verse 14. There's several points in the text where the people of God come into the narrative. Here in verse 14, it says, In those times many shall rise against the king of the south, and the violent among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fail. In order to bring to pass the promises that they find in the vision of Daniel, they will rise up. And notice it, it not only describes them as violent, but it says they lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fail. Listen, God has not called us by our own power with violence to bring about the kingdom of God in the world. 
And if we attempt by ourselves to bring it to pass, we shall fail. God, in His timing, by His power, and according to His own counsel, will bring the vision to pass. And to that end, we who know God are called to stand firm and take action. Look at uh, chapter 11. It really begins in verse 29, uh, drawing again in this, uh, this, the, the people of God who are referred to in these verses as the Holy Covenant. Uh, I'll start, I'll, I'll begin in 29. At the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be this time as it was before, for ships of Katim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw and shall turn back and be enraged. While Antiochus is, is on campaign toward Egypt and turned back by the Romans, the Jews have, in, have, have risen up in revolt against him. And so frustrated that he cannot go against Egypt, he goes against the people of God. It says, shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the Holy Covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering. This is here the abomination of the desolation. They shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. There are among the people of God, among the Jewish people in this particular time and place, those who are ready to turn away from God and make alliance with Antiochus in order to preserve some amount of freedom, of, of self-rule. He's going to flatter these who are willing to violate the covenant in order to bring them onto his side. But look at what it says. The people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. How? What action? The wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help. Many shall join themselves to them with flattery, and some of the wise shall stumble, so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. What action does God require of us in standing firm and taking action? We are to instruct one another to make people understand, particularly, I believe, that what's being described here is not only Christians encouraging one another in the midst of suffering, but Christians making those who do not know Christ to understand the gospel. It's the proclamation of the word of God. Both of these things are considered here in this verse. We will suffer sword and flame, captivity and plunder. These are not described here as the strong ones in that sense, are they? They're not violent ones who rise up in defense of the kingdom, but the wise ones who will speak the truth to their brothers and sisters and to the world around them. And what will they get for their willingness to stand firm? Sword and flame, captivity and plunder. But even these are God's means to refine us, purify us, and make us righteous in preparation for the time of the end which God has appointed. Look at what he says here. When they stumble, that is the wise, they shall receive a little help, and many shall join themselves to them with flattery, and some of the wise shall stumble. To what end? So that they may be refined and purified and made white until the time of the end. There's a, a, a great deal here in these verses 
that we ought to be taking from the text here about what it looks like to live in the time between the first coming and the second coming of Christ. What it looks like to stand firm, to take action, to be a faithful people in the midst of the nations raging against one another and against God. It is very easy, brothers and sisters, in the midst of difficult circumstances to begin wondering, where is God? Why isn't God doing anything? Does God know what's happening? Is God not capable of doing anything about it? Is he not, is he not a good, loving God? If he was, wouldn't he do something about this? And, and that's, not, uh, that's a, not a speculative thing to suggest that we struggle with this at times. It's well known that many Jews became atheists in the midst of and in the years following World War II because of the way that they suffered at the hands of the Nazis. The question on their lips, how could a loving God let this happen to his people? Brothers and sisters, God's been telling telling us in his word for centuries that we, his people, will be subject to the powers of this world for a time. Do not for a moment believe that God is not in control, that He does not love us, that what He is doing is not wise or good. All of it is for our good and for His glory. The world is a seemingly scary and dangerous place for a Christian, and it will continue to be so until Christ comes again. But God is not ignorant of our suffering. He is not powerless to protect us. Instead, He has ordained that we will stand firm making many understand suffering in the work, but by that suffering, preparing us for the end. God will bring the vision to pass at its appointed time. We will be delivered. We will be glorified together with the saints who have gone before, and we will shine like the stars forever. I want to leave you with God's word to that end. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Let's pray.